Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us is Grant McKee, owner of Bucket of Blood Records, a store specializing in records, books, and graphic novels in Chicago's Avondale neighborhood. From a young age, Grant was an avid reader and aficionado of all things heavy and horror. We discuss how he turned his passion into a business, adding selling online to his arsenal, and his thoughts on Record Store Day and the secondary market. Grant has worked hard to build strong ties with labels such as Metal Blade, Nuclear Blast, and 20 Bucks Spin, and we take the opportunity to dive into the ins and outs of the trade side. Grant has created an accompanying playlist for this episode that you can find in the show notes, along with links to upcoming events Bucket of Blood is hosting online. Let's dive into that analog life and get heavy. Grant, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're really pleased to have you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Let's let's begin with your interest in records and books. How did it all start for you? Uh, wow. Um, I mean, I guess it's just sort of a lifelong thing. You know, uh, growing up, my dad always had a big record collection, uh, a lot of country music, uh, Neil Young, Grateful Dead, that kind of stuff. Um, and then the on and as far as the book side of thing goes, you know, um, my parents were generous in a lot of ways, um, but had certain rules, I guess. So growing up, we weren't me, an older brother, and we weren't allowed to have video game systems. um, And we had like restricted amounts of TV we could watch. But they would also buy us however many books we wanted, like all the time. So I was constantly reading I had, you know, probably 80 of the choose your own adventure books and anything that that looked cool the scholastic book fair was was definitely my jam when i was a kid and you know my parents were they very much encouraged uh both of us to just you know get sort of get lost in books and and so it's been just a a a lifelong love it's it's um especially in the in the past year it's just been sort of a, a solace of a pastime I've totally forgotten about those scholastic book fairs, but those, (laughs) I remember when they would come to the school and it was just like, you were in paradise. I think I picked up a roller coaster tycoon game (laughs) one of those one time. And it was like, my mom made the rule. She's like, you can get one game if you buy five books and then you can't open the game until you finish those books. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I thought it was a fair trade off. So moving on from there, what kind of attracted you most about books? Like, was there a specific genre that you were interested in and that you gravitated towards, or was it just a broad spectrum of uh, novels? I have a broad spectrum. I'd say I I gravitated towards um, a lot of the stuff that we do at Bucket of Blood pretty early on. So uh, a lot of science fiction, a lot of horror. Um, Going back to like the Scholastic Book Fair stuff, there's all the like R.L. Stein, Christopher Pike type of stuff that, you know, as a preteen, that, that really hooked me in. Before that, the the scary stories to tell in the dark books with those illustrations that just sort of etch into your brain for the rest of your life. Um, and then uh, science fiction, I think I, I got into because my brother watched a lot of Star Trek, and I didn't really get that into Star Trek, but I kind of wanted something a little bit more along the lines of like Star Wars, where it's a little bit more action-oriented. Um, so I kind of fell into a lot of the kind of epic space opera type of stories uh, at a fairly young age. When did you form an interest in heavy music? So uh, this actually kind of um, dovetails nicely with the reading. Uh, I, I'd say, you know, some of my earlier memories would be like ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne, that kind of stuff. Um, so this would be like late 80s, early 90s. Um, Getting into a couple of years later, I was uh, a big uh, comic book reader. I was, I was constantly buying comics and reading comics. And uh, Marvel Comics got me into heavy music because there was an ad in an issue for Entombs Wolverine Blues. 
And there was a special edition CD that came with a Wolverine mini comic. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I like what I thought of as the time was like hard rock and heavy metal. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to buy this CD. So I have this like exclusive Wolverine comic and yeah, I'll listen to the CD too. So, uh, it's Marvel Comics got me in via Intuned. What an incredible promo. Whoever came up with that, <laughs> like all praise to them. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I like I kind of hope I'm not the only one, but I, I've told that story to other people and, and they I don't know if people aren't aware that that existed or just nobody else made that connection. But uh, it, it worked for me. And, and God bless you, Marvel Comics. And, and God bless you. Intuned. <laughs> <laughs> When did you end up coming to Chicago? So I moved to Chicago um, right after I turned 21, so the fall of 2001. Um, and haven't, haven't looked back. I, you know, like any time, at least for me, I'm, I'm somewhat of an introvert. So um, moving to a new city, it took me a while before I really acclimated and felt at home here. Um, but it's it's great. I, I Sometimes I, I can't believe I've lived here as long as I have because we, we moved around quite a bit when I was a kid. I'd say every three, four years we would move to a different city. So so to be here for almost 20 years now is, is sort of mind-blowing to me. Mm-hmm. How did you integrate yourself in the Chicago music scene uh, when you moved here then? Was it just going to shows and kind of interacting with people at those shows that I guess you would say brought in your heavy music uh, horizons? So when I first moved to Chicago, I didn't really know the city or know how to get around or anything. Um, and the first couple of weeks, I uh, was staying out in the suburbs with uh, John Mandola, who was in um, Kung Fu Rick and He Who Corrupts and a handful of other bands. Uh, this is while He Who Corrupts was going. I think shortly after Kung Fu Rick was done, right around the time that they were finishing. So it was definitely more in like the punk and grind uh side of things rather than than heavy metal but um he introduced me to a lot of people and then um those those first couple years living in the city uh going to a lot of shows at fireside just talking to people there and um i you know honestly i I wouldn't say that i got super um familiar with a lot of the people in the heavier scene until just the last like 10 years or so Mm -hmm. What brought you to the conclusion that you wanted to have a record store? I kind of fell into it, to be honest. So, you know, growing up, um, being the the book nerd and, and comic book guy, I always thought at some point it'd be cool to own a comic book store. Um, and it, I guess partial inspiration was from my older brother. He owned a store in Albuquerque where he grew up that was um, comic books and records. Um, and he was... Uh, very involved in the punk and hardcore scene. So it had that sort of angle to it. It was all punk and hardcore records and then um, a broad range of comic books. So this is what I'm doing now is sort of um, built off that template, though, you know, with, with uh, my own personal spin on it. Um, but honestly, like, so so the store Bucket of Blood has been around for uh, a little over 10 years. It was opened in June of 2010 uh, by a guy named Mark Ruvalo. <clears throat> and he was a Chicago punk guy, uh, ran a record label called Johan's Face, which I think he still operates, uh, been in a handful of bands. And he opened the store. I couldn't tell you his exact motivations for it, but I know that three years later, he was kind of sick of, of having the commitment of being in a retail space six or seven days a week and, and decided that he wanted to move on and do other things. So he was looking for a buyer and, and uh, I was there and, right place, right time, and, and then sort of built on uh, what he had started with the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the original one was in Logan Square, correct? Yeah, it was a, a tiny hovel of a store in a decrepit building on uh, Milwaukee Avenue in California. Um, mm-hmm. And it was like, I think it's 600 square feet. Um, parts of the electricity didn't work. It didn't have working heat. Uh, it, the just the lighting was, but it was like your, your stereotypical mom's basement type of sad little dwelling. It was, uh, you know, it, it was, it was when we took over the store, um, we had a two year lease and sort of intended to leave kind of from the get go. Um, but it, it helped to 
establish the the brand of the store and, and get us going. Yeah. So going from there, you moved to Avondale. What kind of led you to that neighborhood as opposed to maybe Wicker Park, which gets a lot more foot traffic and, you know, there's a lot more of a record buying clientele, I guess you could say, just foot traffic wise in that area. Well, from the business perspective, um, we, we wanted more space. That was um, sort of the, the, the one absolute have to have when we were looking at moving. Uh, and this was about six years ago at this point. Um, we said we needed more space. And then we had to look at sort of uh, where the, the balance is as far as cost per square foot location. Uh, you, you know, you're going to pay a little bit more if you're in a more heavy foot traffic area. You're going to pay a little bit more if you're closer to uh a train station just for ease of public transit. Um, so we looked, we actually looked at a number of places at the time, uh, my wife and I operate the store and, and we were living in Pilsen and we thought about just moving the store there. So that'd be closer to home. Um, we briefly thought about Portage park just cause people were saying like, you know, kind of an, an up and coming neighborhood. A lot of people were moving there. Ultimately what we decided was that we didn't want to relocate the store too far away from where, it had started. We we're really hoping to maintain a lot of the the customers that were coming into the Logan Square location on a, on a regular, semi-regular basis. So we were looking at spots that wouldn't be too too difficult for those people to get to. Um, and we looked at a couple spots on Fullerton, and and ultimately decided on on the spot that we're at now at a thirty one eighty two Elston, partially because of the neighbors around here, um, and and partially just because we thought. Um, that the, the store had established enough of a reputation in five years that we would uh, be able to draw customers here. And when you took over the store initially, I assume you also took the inventory that was, that was left. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, it was a very different store. I mean, it was obviously it was much smaller. Um, right now we're probably at like, 50-50 books and records. That location was probably closer to 70-30 books versus records. Um, more focus on, um, on, on, I mean, we still do a lot of punk records, but he was just as far as like the percentages. Um, had a very small heavy metal section when we took over the store. It was more, it was, uh, um, I don't know. It was just, less of everything. So it's, it's, it, I'm kind of trying to like jump back in my mind seven years. Um, there was a lot of kind of budget used records. A lot of stuff was, you know, five, $6 used records. And I, I don't know how much of that, you know, I kind of, he had just sort of stopped acquiring things for a couple of months. Cause he knew he was sort of checking out of there. Yeah. And, and the, the punk rock buyer is a, is a special mentality in some ways too. Uh, you're definitely looking at uh, bin, looking through bins and looking for cheap records. I think a lot of record collectors do that in some way, but there is something special about like punk records and the mentality you carry when you are uh, a punk shopper. How long uh, did it take you to go from the point of being someone that had someone else's inventory to having something that resembled more of what you were interested in? I'd say it took probably about a year or so. Um, and part of that was, you know, coming from just the, the financial burden of taking over the business. Um, we weren't able to necessarily grow our inventory as quickly as we wanted to. Um, so we took over in August and first started working with some of the, the bigger record distributors uh, about four or five months later. And, you know, from, from the get-go, it was looking at balancing new releases with uh, catalog titles that were sort of more in line with um, our view of, of what we liked and what we would be excited about selling. Um, there's the use the, the book aspect of the things. I mean, um, you know, fortunately the things that we sell have uh, nearly infinite shelf life. So we do still come across the used books with a price handwritten prices that are definitely not my handwriting. <laughs> um, so there's definitely still some inventory that's, that's been here for, you know, seven plus years, just kind of waiting for the right person to say that they they're missing that one book from the Robert Silverberg collection or whatever the case may be. 
<laughs> Let's hold on the idea of your theme here. And it's one of the things that makes your store unique from most other record stores. When I walk into most other record stores, and I think this experience is relatively universal, you find that a record store is a place where most, if not everyone that is interested in records can go and find something that they like. It's really more of a catch-all, whereas your store is a little more specific. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the overall theme and how that kind of guides your purchasing decisions. Sure. So um, we do carry like a fairly broad spectrum of music. Um, You know, we don't, we don't do a lot of kind of mainstream pop music or anything like that. Um, But, the, basically the, the philosophy that I've followed from the beginning um, and going back to previous retail experience that I've had is, you know, I want to sell things I'm excited about. So I want to sell things that I like. Um, so the store focuses on heavy metal and punk vinyl. Um, we do carry a, a, a wide range of, you know, your classics across the board, classic rock, um, sort of those must-have jazz records, funk and soul, uh, hip-hop records, you know, the, the things that you, you sort of, you build a collection. Um, and then the on, on the book side, it, it's kind of a similar thing. Uh, science fiction, horror, uh, fantasy, graphic novels. Again, things that, that I like. And you know, I don't just, you know, I, I wouldn't block out a band that I personally don't like just because I don't like them. Um, but I would, you know, kind of... Uh, steer towards more of the, more of the things that I'm personally excited about. Um, and that's, that's, um, going back to like some of the more punk rock ideologies, the things that to some degree, that's how we built up our inventory. Um, so we started out years ago working with, there's, there's a couple big record distributors. Um, and then at one point I sort of went into that punk rock mentality and said, you know, I should just reach out to these record labels and, and see if I can just buy their stuff direct because, you know, that, that's everything should just be based on this sort of communication. So we started reaching out to labels that we really liked and we carried a lot of records from uh, labels like Southern Lord and 20 Bucks Spin and Relapse. Um, said, hey, we, we carry your records. We're a record store in Chicago and, you know, we've been ordering them from this place. They don't always have the things that we want and I'd rather just get the money directly to you. And for the most part, they've been very forthcoming and, and really eager about working with us. Um, We've, we've built up good relationships um, with with all those labels. I mean, we, we get stuff from 20 bucks band on a very regular basis. Um, last time, Greg Anderson from Sun and the owner of Southern Lord, he was in town uh, just kind of hanging out for a week, and he popped by the store and chatted with us for an hour or so. Um, we also worked directly with Nuclear Blast, and uh, through that, we've been able to do a couple store-exclusive releases from them, which is really exciting. We did uh, uh, store exclusive set releases for the newest Enslaved album, and then a couple of reissues from, from Immortal. So that's kind of been sort of the, the next step in my mind of, of kind of moving our inventory from just things that other people produce to having a little bit more hands-on, uh, putting that bucket of blood brand on things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the books, uh, you also carry a small amount of occult objects. Um, I'm kind of curious where this interest stems from uh, and where it kind of started with you. And was this something you always saw as part of Bucket of Blood or was it something that kind of came later? I'd say that came a little bit later. Um, to be honest, the, the occult books are, are a little bit more in, in my wife's interest. Um, it's I, I've said from the get-go that... Um, if, if I were operating this wholly on my own, it would be a much more boring store. Uh, I think having multiple people's perspectives on things really helps. Uh, she and I have a lot of similar interests, but also a lot of different interests. Uh, but the occult thing, it, it, it works with what we do. I mean, it's, um, you know, everybody that's interested in, or most people are interested in, in, in something fictional also want some sort of supplementary thing with it. Uh, so the people that are reading, uh, I think of some of the more lore-based horror things, you know, your H.P. Lovecraft uh, authors like that, and they want to move on to sort of see, you know, what 
sort of real world philosophies informed these fictional works. Uh, and in much the same way, you know, we, we've carried records for years. So it's sort of a, a, a no brainer to, to move to carrying books about those records and, and working with uh, publishers like Bazillion Points, bring in their, basically their entire catalog, which focuses a lot on heavy metal and punk bands. Um, but the occult stuff, it just, you know, it, it kind of, I, I think if people came into our store and didn't see an occult section, they would think that we're doing something wrong. Definitely. <laughs> um, I think it is interesting, though, that you brought up having a partner and, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other and how it's a more collaborative and cohesive experience with that. And you can attribute that to a lot of bands as well. Um, when there's more than one person involved, your idea expands exponentially. And I think, you know, to work on something by yourself, you're basically inhibiting yourself in many regards. Yeah. I think, I mean, even the, the things that, um, we kind of view as, as being <clears throat> very solo endeavors. You know, you, you look at, you pick up a book and 99 times out of a hundred, it's got one person's name on it, but you know, there's, there's publishers, there's editors, there's people involved. Um, a single-minded vision in my view is often, uh, it's such a narrow focus and it eventually just sort of alienates everybody. Mm-hmm. I also like to think of books too, as you know, we read them individually, but we always share the content of them as well with the people who we enjoy being around. So in essence, sure, the act of reading is a solo endeavor, but you know, you take those ideas that you read and you share them with people. So it's very much a collaborative experience too. Oh, definitely. And we, um, you know, in the before COVID times, uh, ran four book clubs a month and that was about two thirds of my monthly reading. So it was really nice to, to read something and then immediately have somebody to talk to about it and, and figure out what each of us took from that reading and, and how our own life experiences informed what we got out of it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. How has the industry changed over time from your perspective as far as the internet uh, interacting with the record sale industry? Well, it's, it's you know, like a lot of changes. Uh, there's some good, there's some bad. Um, the, the bad thing, which we've seen a lot of, um, especially in this past year, as we've transitioned to primarily being an online business through no choice of our own is, um, the opportunists, the, uh, speculators, um, you know, as, as somebody that's collected things to some degree throughout my life, I've seen what a speculation market has done to baseball cards and, uh, to, the comic book industry in the nineties. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's going to have a similar impact on the record industry, but you know, people snatching up records because they think they're going to be worth something. Um, where to me, the value of a record has always been the music that it contains. Um, people just want, people think that, you know, if they get the certain color variant for $25 at their local record store, they can turn around the next day and sell it for $40 to somebody else online. Uh, and that, that's, it's disconcerting because, you know, I, I got into this business because I'm a fan and, and wanted to share the music and, and, you know, the vinyl is, is for me the, the ideal format for listening to it, but ultimately it's, it's the expression of the music. Um, but the flip side of it, as far as, as a positive impact, uh, that internet has had on on the music industry in the last several years is it's leveled the playing field in a lot of ways, um, both between being able to get physical and digital content distributed to people a little bit more quickly and easily, and also just keeping to some degree, the market in check, you know, it's like for, for good or bad, you can walk into a store and see that a store is charging $35 for a record and immediately determine on your own, whether that's a price that is fair and that you're willing to pay. You can easily see what other people are selling it for, either through another brick and mortar store, through their own website, or through um, an online marketplace like eBay or Discogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have 
the better part of four and a half thousand titles on Discogs is all of that kept in this uh, in the in the store and in this room that you're recording from. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all here. Um, it's you know one of the things that that's changed um, because we've been largely closed to the public since March seventeenth of last year. Um, because we don't have to display as much, we're sort of able to carry more. Um, we're not as, you know, defined by what fits in the record bin that somebody can flip through and see. We, we still largely follow that because, you know, like most other small businesses, we're hoping to be able to reopen and have people come in and, and experience the in-store shopping again. But, um, space is a little bit less of a constraint when you can just keep 200 records in a box and, and pull one out to put it in a mailer. Mm -hmm. And because people are experiencing your curation online at this point more than in person, do you feel more confident in exploring the options available within your curation realm? It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, there's certainly a lot of opportunities to, to, to branch out um, because the, the market has changed so much for us. Um, it's there, there's certain things where, you know, to, to use like one small example, um, I'm obviously here because I like a lot of heavy metal music and operating a retail store in Chicago um, as I'm sure you guys know from being in Chicago and being involved in the scene here, there's certain types of metal that work better than others. Um, among, I mean, I, I listen to a wide variety of, of metal, but um, one thing that I've always liked that we've always struggled to sell in the store is, is power metal. Um, so that's something that we've been able to sort of expand our inventory on because we're reaching more people across the country and around the world um, through online platforms. So when I come in with my Hammerfall collection and my Blind Guardian collection, um, how do you pick what you want from my, uh, my little estate sale of power metal? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I want it all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not getting it, but let's be hypothetical here. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything else you, um, there's, there's experience and then uh, experience sort of informs intuition and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify, but at, at this point I know what sells and I know what is uh, more desirable, I guess, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would try to get all of your hammer fall and all of your blind card. <laughs> um, when we're, when we're talking about, uh, the secondary market of records and disparities in pricing. Uh, Record Store Day comes to mind in some way um, for, for a lot of different reasons. But I, I wanted to know uh, first how Record Store Day has kind of changed for you and do you see the way that it is now as something that can be sustainable in the future? Well, with uh, this year being a big asterisk, um, we had to make a big change as uh, most stores did. Um, I, I think generally leading up to this, every you know there, there were minor variations on the theme of how stores operated on Record Store Day. But ultimately, I think for most stores and for us included, um, leading up to 2020, Record Store Day equals party. Uh, this year, we scale way back and you know, we obviously didn't want a lot of people coming into the store. We didn't want to um, put anybody's health at risk. So we did it entirely virtually. Uh, we had people text in their orders to the store to still create that, you know, first come first serve, which is at the heart of record store day. Um, and in fact, one of the requirements of, um, of being a store that signs the record store day pledge. Uh, and then had people pick up their orders and, and we basically fulfilled as much as we could 
for each person's order. Uh, again, on that first kind of first serve basis, much like standing in line, except that you're doing it from home in front of your phone. Um, I, I think, you know, building up, because we've been participating in Record Store Day since uh, 2014, um, it's, it's only gotten bigger and bigger every year. And I can say from, from our perspective in the store, we love it. It's, it's an absolute blast of a day in normal circumstances. There's, um, there's all the exclusive releases, which, I mean, nobody's forcing us as a store to buy any of them. We can, we can pick and choose what we want. We order the amounts that we want. We don't always get the amounts that we want, which is what happens because they're all pressed in limited quantities. Um, no customer is forced to buy something that they don't want. Uh, I, I feel like it gets a, sort of this bad reputation of like cashing in on certain things. But, you know, if you, if you don't want that $50 12-inch Fleetwood Mac single, don't buy it. You know, if, if I think that it's, it's a bad deal for my customers, I'm not going to order it. Um, there's been a number of things over the years that we've looked at in the, the catalog that we get emailed from our uh, supplier and just said, nobody on earth is going to spend that much money for that release. And we just don't care. Um, but in past years, it's, you know, those releases bring people in. Um, and for the most part, people that come in for record store day releases also use it as an excuse to, to shop at a record store. Um, so they'll, they'll flip through our bins and, and pick up uh, new releases or, um, kind of your, your standard reissues of things or look at what sort of used inventory we have and they'll typically supplement their their record store day title purchase with a lot of other things. And then at least for us, <clears throat> the past couple of years, there's also been, um, you know, that, that party aspect to it. We've, we've worked with our, our friend Carlos at Bulletproof Barbecue who's provided food the last couple of years. Um, we've worked with Metropolitan Brewing the last couple of years. Um, they've, they brought over beer one year, then the next year we, we got the brewer beer with them that we had exclusively here. We've done giveaways and, and uh, added in little extra bonuses for the first couple of shoppers. It's it's a fun day. And I I think like a lot of things in life, there's, there's this louder naysayers that make it seem like a really bad event. But I, I think if you talk to just about any record store owner at the end of the day, it's it's a positive thing for us in the industry. Do you see this uh, as, as it's grown, the record store day, do you see the event attracting more and more people to the record stores on a daily basis as well? Or is it more a one and done kind of day for a lot of people? That's hard to say. I think it's both. Um, we're, you know, I, I can't speak for every store. I think that we're kind of fortunate in, in the respect that, Generally speaking, on Record Store Day, we see 80% of the people in line are people that we see on a regular basis, um, which means that we're not as impacted by the dreaded flippers. Um, we'll have people come in and they'll buy 20 or 30 records, but I'll look at the person buying them and I say, I know that these are all for you. Like These are things that I know that you're passionate about. These are artists that you like. These are releases that we've talked to you for the last, we've talked about for the last couple of weeks and, and know that these are things that you've been um, excited about picking up. Um, it's, it, it, it does bring in just a, a lot of people across the board. Um, it's kind of weird because the timing in April, I feel like the, the real time that we get the most people first getting interested in record stores generally speaking is actually January and, and late December because you get those people that are, you know, maybe had their eye on a turntable and then they got one for Christmas and now they're diving into to buying records. Um, we also had that a little bit, um, though all online, of course, in uh, April of this year as people made the transition to working from home and they realized, hey, you know, I can listen to my records at home now, so better bulk up that collection. Mm -hmm. You know, you brought up something interesting that I experienced in beverage retail, uh, and that is the uh, secondary market aspect. I remember there were a couple of times where uh, a bar that I worked at had a tavern license. So 
on New Year's Eve, instead of expecting people to come in and celebrate, we sold a lot of our rarest bottles that day so the people could take them home and do what they wish with them. Um, and a lot of those were beers that carried a pretty strong secondary market value. And we knew when people were coming that were our regular customers. And we also knew when people were not customers and trying to impose limits was a challenge in some way. Um, how do you, uh, have you had to confront a situation where it's very clear that something's happening here? And do you, as a retailer, feel obligated to step in? Um, I do feel obligated to step in. Maybe not so much as a retailer, just as myself. Um, we've had situations like that, especially the last couple months as um, our customers have sort of become more ones and zeros. Like we, we, we have an easier time sort of tracking these purchases. Um, so like I said, for the record store days, we had people text in for orders and we, we could sort of line people up as, you know, we'd see a text order come through and, and sort of ask ourselves, does this look kind of suspicious? We had one person order sort of those most sought after items for that month. And we were able to sort of, uh, through a, a tiny bit of detective work, find their listings on Discogs for all of those things at two or three times what we were charging, which is, we're, we're, um, we're required to charge, well, not required, we're um, only allowed to charge sort of a maximum amount. Um, so there's a suggested retail price. We can go slightly above that as per the rules of record store, which is why you see that secondary market of people buying stuff from a record store for $25, $30 and then immediately selling it for 80 So we had one person text in an order for these five or six particularly sought after titles for that month, found their listings on Discogs. All these were at four or five times what we were selling them for and we canceled their order. So we weren't going to sell to, to record flippers. Similarly, we had somebody buy a record from us on Discogs, which we then relisted because uh, we had another copy of it. And bought that one as well and then asked us if we had more copies available for sale and you know it's it's pretty easy you click on his name and items for sale and there he is selling the exact thing he's trying to buy from us you know trying to be a, a reasonable record store selling things to, to people that again want to buy the records because they want the music at our standard retail price and he's trying to sell it for two and a half times that and i just said no i'm not i'm not going to send you these records i'm not going to have you take advantage of, of my hard work of, of things like acquiring a business license, um, paying rent on a brick and mortar storefront, which is a requirement to get some of these releases, uh, establishing and maintaining a relationship with my distributors for five to seven years or more so that he can take advantage of me trying to be fair to all of my customers. So, you know, I, I personally have, have stepped in on on occasions like that. Um, but it's interesting because I, I have maybe a, a slightly similar background to you then working, I worked in a retail liquor store before this and you sort of, there's sort of that secret handshake. There's like, we got this rare whiskey in and you know, so-and-so who comes in and buys whiskey on a weekly basis. Hey, do you want to buy this bottle in addition to what you're normally getting? Sure. And then the other person that you see once a year when, that whiskey gets released that calls up you just go no yeah we're all sold out of that mm -hmm. yeah it's uh it's a complicated it becomes complicated when you're not 100 percent aware of the intentions but once you are then uh it's it's pretty clear as to what's objectionable and what isn't now you mentioned a record store day pledge and uh a lot of things kind of come to mind when you say that uh, visually, but I do want to know, uh, let's, let's peel some of this back a little bit uh, for those that aren't in the trade of who haven't worked in retail or aren't in the trade. Um, can you tell us exactly kind of how you go about uh, what layers there are in the industry of how you're acquiring uh, these albums and then specifically how do your distributors or labels interact with record store day as a, uh, as a 
a committee or some type of idea, how is that administered as well? So new vinyl, um, there's a handful of um, larger distributors that uh, most record stores work with. Like I said, there's beyond that, there's probably a dozen uh, smaller distributors and labels that we work with directly that other stores may or may not do. I acquaintances and friends with most of the people that operate record stores in the city. And, you know, we're, it's a big city. There's a lot of record stores in Chicago and, you know, we're all sort of doing our own thing. So me ordering directly from 20 bucks and there's probably not that many other stores in the city that do that because most stores don't have as, as strong of a focus on their releases that we do. Um, so working with the major distributors, it's, you know, they, they're the big guys for a reason. They carry everything. Um, on an average week, we scroll through their website and there's between two and 300 final releases for the week, which constitutes new releases and reissues. Um, we don't carry CDs, so I, I couldn't really speak to that side of things. Um, I imagine it's fairly similar. Maybe that just increases your uh, weekly catalog from 250 to you know, 600 or so. Um, so we are from them. And then uh, for Record Store Day specifically, if a record label has something for Record Store Day, and I, I could be wrong on this. I, I don't know if the rules changed, but de definitely a couple of years ago, you couldn't purchase that directly from the label if you work with directly with the label you still have to purchase it through a distributor and there's i think five distributors five or six distributors that handle record store day titles um and as a store in order to participate we have to sign that record store day pledge which fairly basic stuff it just says you know we uh what our maximum markup is allowed on it um when we can start selling it um and uh, and then there's sort of like the rules for the post initial rush of record store day, which, uh, has changed a little in the past couple of months, but it was basically after the day of, um, the next day is when we were allowed to start selling it online. Cause the real focus is to get people into the physical stores. And then when we sell online, we can't sell, uh, like as an auction on eBay, it has to maintain that integrity of the store selling it at a specific price point at sort of a maximum suggested retail price. Um, so, I mean, it, it really kind of levels the playing field for stores, which I think is great because it really should encourage people to just go to the store that they normally go to anyway, because every store ostensibly will have the same inventory at roughly the same price. It just matters. And this is another thing I talk about with uh, other people I know that own record stores. It's, you know, how is, how is your fill? How are your allocations? Like, oh, I ordered 30 of this and only got 10. It's, it's, uh, that, that's the, the main sort of competitive thing about record store day between the stores is, you know, you get as many of the things that you, yeah, you just get as, as much as, as you wanted of the things that you ordered. Mm -hmm. If you're working with uh, directly with the suppliers, in this case, like the record labels and record store days administered by the wholesalers, is there any issue with uh, allocations because you're not doing all of your business with the distributors? Or is there negotiation between the labels and the distributors as far as how those allocations go? I think once it's in the hands of the distributor, it's it's up to them to decide who gets what. And I, you know, I don't know exactly what the rules are, um, or what the algorithms are. I don't know how much of it is, is how long you've been working with them. You know, if it comes down to how much you spend with them, um, it's, it's all sort of a victory. Uh, and, you know, there haven't been too many times in the past where we've looked at something and been really upset at what we ended up getting there's there's been a few times i think where we ordered you know 20 of something and got two but, but for the most part we've been we've been fairly lucky that you know we we get a fairly large percentage of what we order and, and are generally happy with what we get and, you know from our perspective we always uh we talk to our customers ahead of time and we sort of go all right well we know these 12 people really want it 
and you know if we end up getting 15 we feel pretty relieved because we know that those those 12 regular customers should be able to get the thing that they want so i'm a huge fan of analog um i think you know it occupies in my life a space where if I'm putting a vinyl on, I'm dedicating that amount of time to listen to an album in its entirety. And we live in a culture that is very much promoted by singles and listening to individual songs. Um, do you think there's room for this kind of concept to listen to albums in their entirety to grow? Or do you see it something as like a market that's growing smaller and smaller as we move into this single kind of mentality? I mean, it's, it's interesting because as far as pop music goes, I mean, it started with singles. You know, you look at um, what you would call the first couple Beatles LPs, and really that's just the 12 singles that they released the previous year crammed onto one record. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that obviously changed a lot as we get into, and I'm talking, you know, primarily about mainstream music. There's always going to be, you know, different artistic expressions on the fringes. But, you know, you get into like the 60s and you get this stuff like, um, Sergeant Peppers and uh, Beach Boys, where it's really designed to be consumed as a, a full album, um, where the bands were steering away from uh, from just putting out singles. Um, yeah, I, I kind of think that there's room for both. I mean, I, I'm a full album guy myself. I like I like the sequence of things. Um, I like knowing that an artist. Um, had in mind that this song should go before this and, and, and sort of building a narrative, whether it's a concept album or not. Um, I like a lot of prog rock. I mean, like Rush is my favorite band. So, so definitely I'm, I'm a full album guy. <laughs> um, uh, and then there, there's certain other things like, you know, in the, the progressive and progressive leaning artists where the, the full album, I, I, I can think of a, a bunch of things where I can't even imagine not listening to the full album um things like there, we just got a reissue in of uh colors from between the buried and me and mm -hmm. it's one of my absolute favorite albums uh i kind of think it's bad on vinyl because all the songs bleed into each other so mm -hmm. it's sort of a weird pause as you flip it over um one of my favorite releases from actually my favorite release from 2019 was a uh, mysterium tremendum by lord dying and that's something where i can't imagine listening to one song like i put that record on and I know what I'm doing for the next 50, 55 minutes, however long it is. Um, and, and then I, I was talking to a customer not too long ago about uh, about listening to an album and, and knowing from one song to the next, like what that progression is going to be. And that I could only think of, I think, three greatest hits albums where it's like, that's the, that's the sequence that's in my head. But other than that, I'm like, uh, you know, you listen to, Alice in Chains Dirt and you you know what order those songs go in and, and any interruption to that is just it just throws you off. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I I personally have always been the type of person that's you know, I'm gonna sit down and listen to a record from track one to, to the very end. Um, but I you know, on the flip side, depending on this kind of music, you know, with a lot of pop music, maybe I don't need to hear a whole album. Maybe I just want to hear the one song. Mm -hmm. Do you think so a lot of people who listen to records have this notion that listening to something on vinyl is a different experience than listening to something digitally. Do you think that that actually has something to do with the medium of vinyl or the fact that, that most people are listening to vinyl on a really nice sound system? I think it's a combination of things. I, th I think that you get a, a richer, warmer sound from the, the physical format of vinyl versus digital, um, whether it's a CD or streaming. Um, I think it's also just the the physical aspect of having to to put a needle down and and flip over that record every you know 18 20 minutes or whatever the case may be um, sort of requires a little bit more focus and a little bit more attention to it um, the fact that it's slightly more difficult and more time consuming to to move from one song to another without just letting it flow the way that uh, the artist intended. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, that analog aspect of listening to vinyl does, um, 
I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest, like, I think it's a superior way to listen to music for, for those reasons. You know, I, I, I want to know, I want the journey of the full album and I want the, I want the sound that enveloped and, you know, completely envelops me. I feel like when I listen to something digitally, cause I, I definitely use Spotify to like check out artists that I'm not aware of or whatever. I feel like I get a couple songs into a record and I go, Oh, I want to see what else I can listen to now. Like what are some similar artists or, or my brain is already moving on to, I listen to two songs to that and I want to listen to this. Whereas with a record, I'm hundred percent of the time I'm in it from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of my favorite things I always notice is when I listen to something digitally before I listen to it on vinyl. Um, and I think the first record where I really noticed this was when Behemoth put out, I loved you at your darkest. Um, I heard it digitally first and then I picked up, it picked it up on vinyl and Immediately when uh, when you listen to something on vinyl, it's attached to that speed that you're listening to it at. So it at times will be pitch shifted in a way because it's played at a slightly higher speed than you're used to listening to it digitally, or at least it was the case with this record. And I was like, oh, hold the phone. Like, have I been listening to this wrong the whole time? And, you know, as I'm taking the journey through the record, I came to the realization of just noticing all these little small nuanced parts. And I had listened to this record on my sound system before just digitally and I never noticed it. And now I'm starting to pick out all these small sounds and it was just, I, I was completely blown away, but mostly, I don't know, is this something you've noticed with the speed of a record and how it's played compared to a digital format? It, it could either be slower or quicker and it, it throws me off sometimes. A little bit. I mean, um, there's also, uh, you know, kind of, kind of similar to what you're talking about. Like the the standard these days is, you know, so and so has a new album coming out. So here's here's the first single that you can stream right now, and here's the second single. And usually, it seems like they put out half the album before the album comes out. Um, I will occasionally dip into that because I feel like I need to know from a business perspective. But if it's an artist that I'm really excited about. I, I won't listen to a note until I can actually put the the needle on on the vinyl because I I feel like it's the intended way it's it's the way that the artist wants you to listen to it. Um, mm-hmm. There there's definitely things where I've I've gone from digital to to the the vinyl format and seen or heard rather a, a, a difference in the sound. There's even an, uh, situations where I've I've picked up a remastered version of something and. You know, you can you can sort of pick up on those changes. Um, one and and uh, keep going back to the same well. Uh, picked up the reissue of Rush's Twenty One Twelve a couple years back, and you know, an album that I know and love and listened to a hundred times. And I, I was literally hearing things that I didn't even hear on my original vinyl pressing of it. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 interesting. You know, it's it's the records make you slow down. They make you listen, and they make you pick up on things that. Uh, I feel like you don't digitally, for sure. I mean, it, it, I, again, and, and this this is my personal perspective. When I'm listening to things digitally, too often I find myself thinking about what the next thing is going to be, and I don't focus. And I think it's because it's it's so easy to just push a button and then walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, there's there's definitely a sense of. Uh, mindfulness and purpose when you're listening to a record do you feel as though that applies to uh the other mediums that you're selling in the store as far as comics and books and uh movies as well yeah definitely um yeah i mean it it's funny because um again we read a lot of books for our book clubs and my wife is a person where when she picks up a book she pretty much has to finish it in one sitting. She needs to sort of dive in and get through the whole thing in one get-go. I'm a little bit easier. I have an easier time kind of, you know, reading through five or six chapters and putting it down and picking it up a little bit later. Um, but, you know, that, that definitely requires a, a focus and, and a mindfulness. Um, one of the things that's uh, that I've noticed for my own personal relationship is, is – a smaller aspect of the store, but one that we definitely take pride in is uh, the film selection. 
and how easy it is nowadays to sort of half watch something. Um, it's so easy to, to put something on on your TV and, and get distracted by other things. Uh, I saw somebody tweet about this the other day about Jinwei and, and watching something on the big screen while also using their small screen. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I need to be more absorbed and more in the moment. And, um, and I, I think, you know, it, it's media comes from art. You know, the media that we sell, it, it's art. It's it's musicians creating music. It's uh, an author stringing together words in, in a way that a reader will find compelling. It's filmmakers putting together words and images in, in ways that should elicit some sort of reaction. And, and those all deserve our, our full undivided attention. There are a couple of questions that uh, some of our listeners had. One that I've wondered about for a long time that I wanted to uh, share was and this has happened to me when someone walks into your store uh, and you're playing something that they enjoy. Do you find people buying that item that you're playing? Yes. And that is the absolute best feeling is putting something on and, 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 you know, seeing people react to things. It's sort of that high fidelity moment. Um, But also just, having it connect with somebody. Um, I think my favorite experience, and I, I think uh, Sam wasn't there, but it, it, it sort of ties into Sam, was, um, when would this have been? Uh, I guess a year and a half ago or so, we were doing a, an in-store event, a listening party for a local band called Snow Burial. And so we played their record through a couple times. The guys were hanging out. Um, people were into it. We were, it was like the release day, so we were selling it. So we listened to it like three, four times. And then um, afterwards, things were kind of winding down, but they were still here. And I'm like, well, I'm going to throw on the new Cult of Luna that comes out on the same day. Mm-hmm. And it got like halfway through the first song. And every band member is like, is this the new Cult of Luna? I'm like, yeah. Like, all right, well, we need to, we each need to buy a copy right now. I go, okay. <laughs> and then I think Sam got our last copy and I had to, to wait to restock for my own personal one, which was totally fine. Um, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a fun moment. It's a thrilling moment. And, and you know, there, there's definitely times where I'm in the store um, and there's customers in and I'm playing something that I like and I kind of feel guilty if it's, if we don't have a copy for sale. But on the other hand, like, you know, I, I shouldn't be entirely restricted to what I can listen to. Like, if it's something out of my personal collection that's been out of print or something that we simply don't have in stock at the time, it's, 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 it kind of pains me because I want to help out our customers as much as I can. But, you know, sometimes you have to be like, no, no, I, I can't sell you this. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Grant, thanks for joining us. Do you have any uh, any parting words or any events you'd like to plug? Yeah, so uh, a couple things, um, and you know, but before before all the the COVID stuff, you know, we used to have a, a long list of, of store events that we could plug, and and things have definitely changed a lot. But there's still some fun things going on. Um, so one of the things is we're working with um, the Live in the Mojave Desert. A series of live streams. Um, so there's a link on our Facebook page, um, and we're, we've been creating kind of Facebook events for each one of these, um, where you can get tickets for to watch these live streams. And there's there's a different concert every two weeks. Um, the next one coming up is going to be February 6th with Nebula. This is for a long, long, long time. Um, and this is uh, a situation we've had a couple of these happen over the last year or so, where companies that Post these live streams, um, hook up with record stores, and, and basically buy a ticket through the link from the record store. We can do a kind of ticket sale, which is nice for everybody. You know, more people watching the band, which is great, um, and and it, it's a good way to help out your local record store. Uh, in addition to buying records, um, and then the other thing uh, that I'm personally really excited about is um, starting on Wednesday, February 17th, I'll be hosting a monthly two-hour afternoon radio show. Um, I don't have the full details, but I hopefully will very soon, so keep an eye on, on the Bucket of Blood social media, but it's going to be hosted through uh, the 
Vans, the uh, streetwear and shoe company. So this is something that we're partnering with House of Vans on, um, and they're giving us a, a monthly two-hour show to, to play some good music. Going to be uh, lots of heavy stuff, lots of fast stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. I miss I miss DJing. You know, in the, <laughs> before time, I got to do a, a monthly gig at Delilah's and uh, a couple other things here and there. I miss getting to do that, so I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Sounds like you'll be busy coming up here, so we'll, we'll be looking forward to that. I didn't know House of Vans was doing that, so I'll have to check that out. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely make sure to, for listeners, we'll definitely make sure to have uh, information about that stuff in the episode notes, so keep an eye out for uh, some active links there. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the show, Grant. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good to see you guys. You yeah. too. Bye-bye.